Wants to go back over to James chapter number three this evening. James chapter number three. I already told one person who said that they they were already making excuses for how they were going to fall asleep in a little bit. So I told them, I said, "Well, you just go to the back and you walk around back there, do a few jumping jacks, and we'll, we will all know what's going on. We'll be fine with it. We get it." But glad you stuck it out with us. So we are in James chapter number three, and we are going through a series here on producing spiritual fruit, producing spiritual fruit. We started with this concept of bearing spiritual fruit below the ground in the root system, as is the most important part. If we are trying to produce fruit on an apple tree or on a peach tree, one of the most important things that is paid attention to is when planting that tree, making sure that you dug the hole big enough to fit that root ball down in there, making sure that that root ball gets watered enough, something like a gallon a day you know, for a while, making sure that root ball gets plenty of water, making sure that the, the dirt has the nutrients in it that is needed. You know, in Florida, they used to have special fertilizer they'd put down around the palm trees to keep them alive. Our church was there along Royal Palm Boulevard in Margate, Florida, and uh, there was Royal Palms, uh, for that's why it was named that way, in the median. So you had three lanes on one side, three lanes on the other, and then the median, you had these big old tall Royal Palm trees running down the whole length of the road. And even in our entryway into the church, there were palm trees running down between the entry road and the exit road. Uh, to get in and out of there. And those palm trees needed some special nutrients to keep them you know, doing well uh, so that those palm fronds could just keep dropping all year round, you know, <laughs> in the middle of the road and stuff. Uh, and they needed special nutrients. And so much care had to be paid, uh, you know, to those, to those trees. I was in Georgia not too long ago in a little uh, town. Man, I can't think of the name of it right now. Uh, a little town there that they've used it in several movies, Hallmark movies and stuff, this little town square where uh, Rachel's sister lives. And I, I was watching uh, some ma maintenance guys working out there. It was Christmas time. It was warm. But it was still Christmas time. They had a sleigh out there and they had the pine trees decorated as Christmas trees. But I saw a guy out there and he was spraying the trees. I was like, what's he doing? I walked over there and he was spraying the pine trees with green spray paint because some of them were dying. And so he was spraying over them with green spray paint so that they looked like nice green pine trees. <laughs> Uh, to make them look nice for all the visitors, you know, that came into that little square uh, to look at the decorations. I thought, okay, well, I guess that's one way to go about it. <laughs> you just spray it green and it'll look green, you know, for a while until you have to take it out. You know, we can go about our Christian walk that way by just spray painting on a little life whenever it needs to be there, making it appear like it's green, making it appear like the root system's healthy. Same thing, we can do that with our marriages and with our families. We can put on the front when we show up around other people, make it look like everything's going just fine. Spray paint it on just fine. But what's going on in the root system? You see, we can only put up a front for so long, right? Before that, that green spray paint starts rubbing off and people start noticing that those pine needles start dropping. And they're like, wait, that's a green pine needle dropping. Wonder what's wrong with that tree? Well, it's because it's not green. There's a problem in the root system of that tree. How do we bear spiritual fruit as Christians? We focus on the root system. 
We want to have these big juicy fruits hanging out there. We want these big broad, you know, leaves out there collecting the sun and turning it, transforming it into sugar for the tree to eat and to digest and then to turn into fruit and flowers. We want all that stuff going on up here. Everybody does, spiritually speaking. We don't want to put in the work and effort into the root system that we need to. And so that's what we've been really focusing in on here on uh, Sunday evenings in our study on producing spiritual fruit. First, on being rooted in the right places. One, it was being rooted in Christ. Making sure that we had our roots in the right person, Jesus Christ. We talked about being rooted in the Word of God. And of course, this is extremely vital. You know, like in Psalm 1, uh, where the tree is planted by rivers of water, and the roots are going down deep, and even during times of drought, it's by the rivers of water. And so it's still near a source of water. It's important that we focus on where we are placing our roots as Christians. Are we putting our time and effort into studying the Word of God and allowing this to be one of the main resources in our lives, the main influences in our life? Or are we mainly relegating the Word of God to a side note, to an accessory that we wear just once a week? Is the Word of God become that source for us as it's supposed to? Being rooted in the Word of God, being rooted in Christ, being rooted in God's truth, we talked about. Being, you know, finding our truth, the universal truths that God gives us, the morality that God gives us via the Word of God, and grounding ourselves there in that truth so that nothing can come along and shake us or move us. It may come along and bend us. It may come along and try to harm us, but we say, this is the truth. We're standing up on the foundation of what God's word says the truth is about, you name it. Nothing's going to move us. We need to be rooted in the truth of the word of God and being rooted in God's wisdom. We started last Sunday evening, being rooted in God's wisdom. Last week, we talked about a demonstration, how to demonstrate godly wisdom. And I said last week that it is shown in our works. And we looked at James 3. I want you to begin reading with me James chapter 3, verse number 13. We'll read to the end of the chapter. James 3, verse 13 says this, Who is a wise man and endued with knowledge among you? Let him show out of a good conversation his works with meekness of wisdom. We see there, who's wise? Who is this, not, this person who's knowledgeable amongst you? Well, if he is, then let him show it on the outside. How? With good conversation. Not just, wor not just words, but his whole lifestyle. His works with meekness of wisdom. Verse 14, but if you have bitter envyings and strife in your hearts, glory not and lie not against the truth. This wisdom descendeth not from above, but is earthly, sensual, devilish. For envying and strife is... There is confusion in every good work. But the wisdom, I'm sorry, every evil work. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure. Then it is peaceable, gentle, and easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace of them that make peace. I want to go back. And focus in on a few things here. Last week we looked about how um, godly wisdom is shown in our works and it is shown in our spirit. And we saw that in verse number 13 last week. 
It is shown in our good conversation and in our meekness of wisdom. But tonight I want to look at this. The de- this afternoon, I want to look at this. The, it's not even afternoon yet, is it? Yeah, it is this afternoon. But it's not this evening. This afternoon. I want to look at the devaluation of wisdom. The devaluation of, of godly wisdom. Our goal to demonstrate godly wisdom does not, does not thrive free of any adversaries. We want to show godly wisdom on the outside. And again, we talk about you know, how spiritual fruit, you can't just force spiritual fruit, right? Spiritual fruit is a byproduct. Spiritual fruit, just like fruit on a tree, is a byproduct of a right environment. It's a byproduct of the right amount of water, the right amount of cold during the winter, the right amount of nutrients in the soil. It's a byproduct of the flowers blooming and of the bees coming and pollinating those flowers so that fruit, I mean, a tree producing fruit, it's a byproduct. The tree doesn't just say make fruit. A lot of things have to go right in order for it to happen. It's a say, very similarly spiritually, I can't just determine fruit and force fruit to come out so that I look and appear godly in every way. I can attempt to and I can try to, but it's, it's not going to work very well. Again, it's a byproduct of a right spiritual environment. Making sure that our roots are in the right place and it's drawing its nutrients and its water from the right place. Now, it's not free of adversaries though. Satan fights us. He doesn't want the unsaved world to see Jesus in us. Sometimes, like this morning, one, I forgot to turn my microphone on, so the sermon didn't get recorded back there. Two, the uh, live stream, for some reason, chose not to work this morning, so I didn't get it there either. And I was thinking to myself, man, this is going to be a good salvation message. I can't wait to use parts of this, you know, to be able to get the gospel out there into the internet, you know, and various people. And somebody, whether it was God or Satan, I can't imagine it be God, said, no, I don't want any of that. Well, in fact, I would rather just shut it down altogether. I don't know if it was Satan or Facebook or Mark Zuckerberg or whatever it was, uh, decided, uh, no, no, we don't need any more gospel on here. See, Satan does attack and he does fight us. Sometimes we may speak about it tongue-in-cheek, but it's a reality, though. He desperately does not want the message of the Word of God to be getting out there into the ears of the hearer. So on Saturday morning, when it's time to go out and knock on doors, There'll be the aches and the pains and the other things that want to get in the way. Whenever we're sitting there on the airplane, <clears throat> excuse me, and the person next to you, you know, God's saying, you need to witness. You need to share the gospel with them and strike up a conversation with them. I know, but I just wanted to sit here and read this book, you know. I just wanted to sit here quietly. I want to put my earphones in. And, or whenever, uh, you know, God lays upon your heart to talk to the waitress. Here she comes back. She's bringing you a check. Here's a good chance for me to hand her a, a church tract and invite her to church and Maybe stoke up a little bit of a conversation with her if I can. Oh, I know, but it's awkward. And she's got other things that she wants to go do. And I've got things I want to go do. And then we give in. Oh, yeah, there's certainly battle going on to prevent us. 100%. The unsaved world needs to see Jesus. But there's a lot of things working against us, including our own flesh. You know, one of the devil's tactics is to make us look like fools. Here we're talking about godly wisdom. One of the devil's tactics is to make us look like fools. We look like fools when we get angry at our spouse and we have these spats over what amounts to be a whole lot of nothing. We look like fools when we treat our children terribly, when we call them names or when we push them away from us. We look like fools when we're gossiping about other people. If our actions and our words don't match the religious talk, 
Is that coworker going to listen to us? Is our neighbor going to listen to us? Our actions don't match our faith. In these cases, what are we doing? We're walking with wisdom that is not God's. We're looking at the world's wisdom. As Christians, we have godly wisdom available to us to the asking. As I've said many times, God did not hide the wisdom out in the Amazon somewhere with a golden lost city. That nobody, nobody's ever going to find it. That's not where God hid his wisdom. The Bible says wisdom crieth out in the streets. You don't have to go far. It's out there. All you have to do is be looking for it. All you have to do is want it. God will give wisdom to all men liberally, and he upbraideth not. That's what the Bible says. But the world has devalued God's wisdom. You don't have to look very far to see where the world has devalued God's wisdom. You could get up on a stage in front of a, a crowd at a music concert and you can announce that to help your career and to help your body, you chose to abort your baby and get a standing ovation. It's happened. But if you were to get up in front of that same crowd and say, I didn't want to have a child, maybe even, even it was forced upon me, but I chose to value the life of my child over my own temporary needs or wants because it is a life that lives within me and chose to have that child, whether or not to give it up to adoption or to raise it myself, I chose to have that child, you wouldn't get a cheering round of applause from today's society, would you? You see, that's God's wisdom. God's wisdom says that is a life, a human life that God values within you. Whether you chose to have that child or whether it was forced upon you, it doesn't make it any less of a life. It doesn't make it any less of a gift or a miracle from God, even if it is a result of your sin or somebody else's. That's God's wisdom. That's not going to get applauded hardly anywhere except for inside of a church these days or at a, a you know, national right to life rally or something like that. But godly wisdom has been devalued. We devalue Christ's wisdom in a couple of ways here. Number one, we devalue godly wisdom when we are divisive. Think about this. On one hand, we want the world to look at Shenandoah Baptist Church and to look at the Christians within it and say, hey, that's a godly group of people over there. Not perfect by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, and man, we really have to stretch the imagination to find perfection, right? Well, uh, the only thing I'm perfect at is sinning. You can ask my wife. But uh, he can look at Shenandoah Baptist Church, and I want them to look at us and to see a godly, genuine, and sincere group of people that want to worship the Lord and serve Him. That doesn't mean that we're perfect. It doesn't mean that they won't see any faults because you're going to no matter what church you look at. And if you see a church that appears to be perfect and that's all that seems to come across, uh, somebody's putting up a front and whitewashing. But what we want on one hand is for people to look at the church and say, hey, that's a good place to go if you want to hear the Bible preached, if you want to hear it opened and taught and expounded upon. Hey, that's a good place to go if you want a group of people that are going to sit there and they're going to encourage you, edify you, pray for you. Hey, yeah, they're old-fashioned. Yeah, they're conservative. But you know what? That's a good place to go if you want the Word of God and not a bunch of entertainment. I want, I want that to be the reputation that we have. However, while we want that on one hand, on the other hand, if we are divisive, 
If there's divisions and fightings and warrings going on amongst us, hey, what do you think is going to spread faster amongst the community? Shenandoah Baptist Church is on fire for the Lord and they're doing right, or Shenandoah Baptist Church is fighting with each other. I can tell you which is going to spread faster. I can tell you which is going to destroy or which has more power to it. When we're divisive, we devalue God's wisdom. Now, that's not to say that if there is sin, that it should not be dealt with. It should be. That's not divisive. That's healing. That's healing a rift that is there. That's healing the wounded Christian that needs help. That's not division. It needs to be taken care of. But divisiveness seems to be the norm for, for our nation. Look at the primaries, for example. You know what irks me to no end is that for a year and a half, the Republicans will destroy each other on the stage. They will belittle each other. Call, well, mostly Trump calls everybody else names to belittle them and to make fun of them. And, uh, and then he wants their support after you know they get the nomination. And then they all have to be buddy-buddy and friends again after they just said all kinds of horrible things about each other for a year and a half. I don't understand it. It's politics, some might say. Not my kind, not, not God's kind of politics, I can tell you that much. That's man's wisdom that says that you have to get up on stage and tear each other apart, even though you're supposed to be pulling on the same team. Everyone knows that it's never going to work on the football field if the quarterback and the running back and the wide receivers are all making fun of each other and are all trying to outdo each other and make everyone else look bad. Oh, you know what? That wide receiver, I don't like him very much. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to throw the ball behind him so he can't catch it and make him look bad but just behind him so that he could have caught it and everybody could make, what kind of team is going to win if they're living that way? The same kind of things can happen within the church too. Divisiveness devalues God's wisdom. Some would refer to that as a fractious spirit. A fractious spirit is evidence of having resorted to the world's wisdom, having resorted to worldly elements in our relationships. When a husband and a wife devolve to the point where they are just making fun of each other and attempting to hurt one another, this is divisive and it's devaluing God's wisdom. How are we supposed to act then? Well, if she would just straighten up, if she would just have dinner ready when I got home, if, if she would just, you know, fix herself up once in a while, oh yeah, well, if he would just keep his trap shut once in a while, and, or if he would, I could fill in the blank with a few things if you like later. But we say, but if, but if they, if they would just fix this, or if they would just do that. And some of those things may very well be true. But we have God's wisdom available to us. We can choose to forgive. And we can choose to pray for one another. And you know what we don't have to do? Have the last word. We don't have to choose to win every single little petty argument that happens. You know what it does? It devalues our relationship. It makes it of less worth in our own eyes. But we can live by the commandment of showing forth good works in a marriage or within a home. We have the ability through the power of the Holy Spirit to show meekness. You know, maybe, maybe she is mouthing off, but you know what? Just because you're twice as strong as her doesn't mean that you get to shove her around. Doesn't mean you get to lay a hand on her. The Bible teaches us meekness. 
Remember Jesus? He was way more powerful than any of us men, right? He could have called down 10,000 angels to come and destroy the world. He could have been so annoyed with those Pharisees that he could have just snapped all their necks with a snap of his fingers. But he showed such extreme meekness, not weakness, meekness, because he knew that there was a purpose that he was serving and he submitted himself, he humbled himself to that purpose, even to the point of being made fun of and injured by people who are far weaker than him. He submitted himself to them. And so much so, he laid his own hands out there to be nailed into the tree, which he could have prevented had he chosen to. But the world teaches us the exact opposite of that. The world teaches us to have pride in ourselves. The world teaches us to not let anybody use us as a doormat to not let anybody walk over us, that we are to stand up for ourselves in every situation that we can. The Bible teaches us meekness. It's the same thing with our friendships and any other relationship in our lives. We wound our friendships. We wound our relationships. We wound our marriage. We wound our family relationship when we are divisive. You know, one of the worst things that I could do for my children, you know, you could say, well, you could beat them. Uh, you know, really one of the worst things I could do is to be divisive with their mother. You know, we have to be pulling in the same direction as parents. Does that mean that mom and dad always agree on everything? No, you know, we don't always agree on everything. But we still need to pull in the same direction. Sometimes we go a little overboard on the, well, what did mommy say? Well, what did daddy say? Well, what did mommy say? What did daddy say? And we're trying to get each other to make the decision on whatever it is. But if I am making fun of their mother to them, like, oh, well, mommy's just ridiculous when she says this, or oh, I don't believe that, or oh, that's a silly rule, you shouldn't have to do that. If I start talking to my kids like that, that's divisive. You know, when parents start talking to their kids like that about their teachers, it's divisive and it devalues the teacher's authority to those children. The children begin to think, well, you know what, my there's nothing special with my teacher. My teacher makes all sorts of mistakes. Mom and dad said so. I don't really need to respect them that much. Mom and dad don't really respect them, and they take that for a ride. The same thing can happen with the preacher or with the youth pastor or the Sunday school teacher. If mom and dad don't value that teacher, even if they make mistakes, and we all do, the children certainly are not going to value them as well. I read a story about a couple men that were applying for a job. They were both applying for the same job. So they had to sit down and they had to take a test. and. Um, after the test, they went to the first applicant and they said, well, thank you for your interest in the job, but we're going to have to give it to the other applicant. And the guy said, well, why is that? And they said, well, you know, you missed, you missed a question. You know, you got one wrong. He said, well, what about the other guy? Did he get any wrong? They said, well, yeah, he got one wrong too. Oh, well, then why, why are you letting him have the job, but not me? They said, well, it goes like this. On number five, the other guy said, I don't know to the answer. But on number five, you said, neither do I. Clearly, he was just copying the other guy's answer. For those of you who are a little slow and in a food coma right now, uh, just bring you, it, it was funnier than my, in my head than maybe it came out. But think about this too. An evidence of divisiveness is in the increase of lies too. Worldly wisdom says that in whatever effort I need to go through in order to make that person look bad, I will go through, even if it means lying about them. In the world's wisdom, we get the glory, but we lie against the truth. The Bible says in James 1.26, 
If any man among you seem to be religious and bridleth not his tongue, he but deceiveth his own heart, this man's religion is vain. In other words, just like we talked about, they, they tape on that fake plastic fruit that looks uh, suspiciously too red. You know, that's a, that apple suspiciously too perfect. Uh, I'm beginning to wonder if that apple is not a real apple, or that you know peach is suspiciously too perfect. I'm beginning to wonder if that's a fake peach, if it's plastic or or wax or something like that. And they put on all the fake leaves and all the fake and make it look presentable, but then you catch them slipping. And, and using curse words and, and using derogatory terms for, you know, other races and things like that. Or, you know, telling bad jokes. You start catching them slipping and you have to start wondering, well, what's going on in the root system? If those things are coming out. We can't devalue, we shouldn't devalue Christ's wisdom. But when we do, we are steeped in deception. Even to the point that we deceive our own selves. And we start to think, well, you know, I'm really not that bad. Oh, sure, I do say these things, or sure, I do watch this or listen to this every now and then. But, you know, by and large, really, if you were to, like, look at it all as a big whole, yeah, there's all this good stuff over here. There's this bad stuff, but there's a lot of good stuff. And I'm, I'm really a lot better than a lot of these other guys out there, you know, where they just let everybody see their bad stuff and don't try to put on a front and hide it. We could deceive our own selves into thinking that we're fine, when in reality, we are sinners before God and we need His forgiveness. We devalue God's wisdom when we are divisive. We devalue God's wisdom when we are devilish. Look at verse 15. When you say that's a weird word to choose, is it just because it starts with a D, Pastor? Well, no, it's because it's in, it's in these verses. Look at verse 15 and 16. James 3, 15 says, This wisdom, what wisdom? Verse 14, Bitter envying, strife in your hearts, glory not, and lie not against the truth. Verse 15, That wisdom, this wisdom, descendeth not from above, but is earthly, sensual, and devilish. For where envying and strife is, there is confusion and every evil work. Another way to devalue godly wisdom, according to verse 15, is to resort to devilish tactics. And you say, well, you're going to need to explain a little bit by what you mean by devilish. Well, thankfully, the verse did that for me. Look at the two, the two words preceding the word devilish. It says there, earthly, sensual, and devilish. Earthly. When we think of earthly, we think of... Uh, the rudiments of this world, like it says in Colossians 2.8, where he says, Beware lest any man spoil you th through philosophy and vain deceit after the traditions of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after the Christ. In other words, beware lest somebody tempt you into going astray into the traditions of men versus the word of God. Going into the doctrines of men versus the word of God. Going into the philosophies of men versus the word of God. Intellectualism and science versus the word of God, or science so-called versus the Word of God. When we look at earthly things, we're talking about man's wisdom here, but he also says sensual. Well, in 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, it says this, In whom the God of this world, that's the devil, hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. You ever talk to somebody and try to give them the gospel, and it just seemed like they had their blinders on? 
There was nothing you were going to say that was going to at all prick their conscience, or at least it seemed that way. It seemed like the devil had sufficiently blinded them to any effort that you might put forth. We also have to understand this, that the Word of God is more powerful than the devil's blinders. That doesn't preclude us from sharing the gospel with somebody just because we think that it's never going to accomplish anything. We still have the duty to do so. And the Word of God is still more powerful than the devil's most powerful tactics to blind them. The devil's tactics are described here as earthly, but also sensuous. Sensuous, dealing with the senses. You know, we have five ways in which we experience the world, right? I'm able to smell the world. Man, I walked out last night and early this morning to go put Meemaw's um, suitcase in her car. And I was just hit in the face with earth, you know, that, that fall smell of dirt and, and rotting leaves. Uh, I love that smell. Maybe you don't, but I love that smell. Uh, come fall time, it always reminds me of deer season because that's what the woods smell like, you know, in the fall and in early winter. You just get hit in the face with earth, you know, smell. Some hunters will take and they'll smear that smell on them to help cover up their scent. Now, I take all my good smelling scents out there with me. I think the deer want to smell it. Maybe that's why I don't do such a great job. I should probably stop wearing you know, all my cologne and stuff when I go out there. Um, maybe not shower for two or three days prior to that uh, so that I don't have any good smell. I'm, I'm going to stop talking about it now. <laughs> Sensual. We smell the things around us. We experience the world by smell. We experience the world by sight. And that's a beautiful thing this time of year, right? To be able to experience the world around us by sight. We experience it by hearing. You know, the old question, does a tree make any noise when it falls in the woods if nobody's there to hear it? Science would say, well, yeah, obviously. I mean, if a tree falls, it's going to cause vibrations in the air, which is going to cause, uh, cause noise, even if nobody's there to hear it. And then the philosopher would say, yeah, but if nobody's there to hear it, then is it really noise? If you know, there was no ears out there uh, to, to pick up that sound, then did it really cause any noise? And, and then, of course, they can argue further and further and further and uh, be ridiculous. Of course, it makes noise, you know, just because there's nobody to hear out there to hear it. We experience the world by hearing it. And that's a, that's a great blessing, too, unless you're deer hunting and the squirrel are running around the woods like elephants uh, and making you think that, you know, you got a, a flock of, flock of deer <laughs> coming down the hill towards you. And really, it was just this little chipmunk, you know. Man, they can sure make a lot of noise, can't they? We experience the world through physical touch. That's also a blessing, too. Being able to touch things, being able to know how hard to grip onto things, to be able to hold onto it without breaking it or dropping it. The, the physical feeling of being able to hug somebody or hold their hand or put your arm around them. We experience the world in all of these ways. Those are our senses. And our senses are not bad. It's okay to smell. It's okay to taste. It's okay to touch. It's okay to hear. Those things are good, but I can use my hearing sense in a bad way by listening to terrible rock music and bad words. You know, I can use my eyesight in a bad way by looking at things I ought not to be looking at. I can use my physical you know, touch sense in ways in touching things that I ought not to be touching. I can use all of my senses in ways in which I ought not to, even my taste. You know, I can, I can wrap up a joint. I can begin to smoke and enjoy the, the taste of uh, you know, marijuana. Uh, and I can be doing it in the wrong way or the taste of alcohol and beer. And some people like the taste of that stuff. I can be using my senses in a wrong way. What the problem is, is this. When we allow our senses to take control, our flesh to take control of us. And our flesh says, I want this, I want to do this. And we've not trained our flesh 
to give in to our spirit rather, to give in to the Holy Spirit rather, we have allowed our flesh to have control. And so what our flesh wants, we give our flesh. This is sensual living. This is making our decisions based upon our senses and how we feel. Feelings are important. The feelings are not meant to be our guide. Truth is meant to be our guide. You know, sometimes women are, are pretty good at having uh, instinctual feelings about people. You know, uh, there's something about that person seems off. I don't know why. Or, you know, that, that woman, I just something about her I don't like. You know, she tells her husband, I want you to stay away from her. You know, I can't put my finger on it, but something, I just feel like something's off there. And, you know, they warn their husband about that person. You know, I've heard stories about, you know, how, you know, they've dodged a bullet in a sense in that way because uh, she just sensed, you know, that something was off. I'm not saying that all feelings are bad, but we ought not to let our feelings, our senses guide us, just like we ought not to let our, gar- our heart guide us. And so we get a description here of what devilish means. It means resembling or proceeding from an evil spirit. We compare it to the two words prior to it, earthly sensual, devilish. See, the devil wants me desperately to just pay attention to the things of the world and the world's wisdom and the world's philosophy and education. The devil also desperately wants me to just give in to my flesh in every aspect, to keep me on the sidelines and useless to the Lord, to keep me constantly losing. This is devilish. Devilish wisdom in the extreme We find it in physical attacks of people on others. Innumerable are the crimes committed, and innumerable is the innocence lost because of following devilish wisdom. It's deceptive. It's self-destructive wisdom. This devalues God's wisdom. Now, we don't have any control about what goes on in the world around us. We can go to the ballot box and we can, we can vote for leaders who are going to be against bringing casinos in, which is going to bring trouble in. We can go and vote for leaders who are going to be against you know, legalizing marijuana. We can go and vote for leaders who are going to try to prevent some of these things from coming into our neighborhoods. But as the world turns more and more worldly, our voice is going to get quelled more and more. That doesn't mean we stop voting. That doesn't mean that we stop Uh, trying to be a light. In fact, the darker our community gets, the brighter we're going to shine. You say, well, I don't want to stick out. (laughs) I don't want to stick out in my family or in my neighborhood. It's, it's, we have to, it's vital. Let's put it this way. Let's put it this way. You're not to just try to stick out. Okay. That's just going to make you weird. What you need to do is read your Bible every day and talk to God every single day. Study it, learn from it. But before you do that, you pray and you ask God to work in your heart. You ask God to teach you something that you need for that day. And then that day you walk in the Spirit. And when you sin, you get forgiveness for sin. And then you continue to walk in the Spirit. And then when you sin again, guys, you seek forgiveness for that sin once more. And then you continue to walk in the Spirit. And if you do this on a daily basis, you know what's going to happen? Without you ever trying to, you're going to end up being a bright light in your family or in your neighborhood, in your community, without you ever even trying to be. Because as we said, fruit, spiritual fruit is a byproduct. And being a light is also a byproduct too. Being a testimony and a good witness, 
that's also a byproduct. It does take some intentional, you know, talking, some intentional thoughts of, of picking up tracks and being sure to intentionally give them out. But that is also just a byproduct of doing right, of walking with the Lord. So I can't control the world around me, but I can control me. And I can make sure that I am not being divisive. That I am not being divisive against my wife within my home or even against my children. It's possible in the same way to be divisive against the children by tearing them down in ways in which are not appropriate or are kind uh, in trying to divide even amongst siblings. It's possible to be divisive uh, in, in somebody else's family. As a teacher, you know, I had to walk that line in several ways as well with people's kids because I didn't want to sit there and badmouth their parents in front of them. Uh, even if their parents were making what, in my opinion, were horrible decisions, I couldn't, you know, say that. Uh, and I you know, would pray for them, and I would try to maybe share some some good information or things that they ought to do. But I couldn't be divisive in that way either. How is that going to affect my reputation as a Christian? Well, it's going to massively affect it, and it's going to it's going to cause others looking at me as a as a Christian teacher in a Christian school or a Christian principal. And they're thinking to think to themselves, man, is that what a Christian does and says? Is that what God's Bible, you know, God's word tells people to say and do? And then I cause God's wisdom to be worth less in that person's heart. Now, I didn't actually make it worth less, but in their eyes, I hurt the testimony of God and his word by the way I behaved myself. So I can't be divisive. I ought not to be divisive, but also I ought not to behave devilish. In other words, I, again, as I said there, I ought not to be so caught up in the things of this world, earthliness. I mean, hey, I got to have money to survive, right? I have to have a home. I have to have a vehicle to get back and forth. Um, but I ought not to be so caught up in the things of the world in every aspect. The world's wisdom, the world's intellectualism, the world's entertainment, the world's everything, so to become such a part of who I am. Instead, I need the Holy Spirit, the Word of God, and God to be such a vital and important part of who I am that that's what comes out. That's what slips out. That's what people end up seeing. Not devilish and earthly or also sensual. Learning and keeping, learning to keep our body under subjection. You know, we've talked about that in the past about ways in which we can train our bodies to be under subjection, and it, 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 a variety of things. So, you know, our, our bodies desire certain things. Sleep. You know, obviously you need food and water, but there are certain kinds of food you know you don't need. Uh, certain kinds of, of drink you know you don't need, and you can train your body to say, well, you can train, make yourself say no. Or maybe it's the exercise. Make yourself, you know, do something you don't want to be doing. But teaching your body that it's not in charge and you're not going to just give it whatever it wants you to have whenever it wants you to have it. It sees the brownie, eats the brownie, you know. Uh, so no, no, no. I had one brownie this day already or this, this hour already. <laughs> so I'm only going to eat one brownie per hour. You know, I tell my body no. Uh, that's a lot of brownies if you're going to eat that many a day. I know I'm just kidding. But teaching your body, keeping it under control. In other words... Well, not being sensual, not giving into your flesh in your senses. Because those things devalue God's wisdom. Because the world is looking and they're watching. And when they look at Shenandoah Baptist Church, 
what I would like for them to see. It's not a, not a church of perfect people, but a church that is sincere and desirous to please God and do what's right. We may go about things in a little bit of a different way than they might in their church or something like that, but I want them to see sincerity. I want them to see the love of Christ. I want them to see a genuine desire to, to, to learn the Bible and to understand its meaning and to learn how to apply it to our own lives on a daily basis. I want them to see that here. And it can't just be me. You know, I, I, maybe I might be the face of the church in one way. I might be the face you know, on the internet of the church in one way, but it can't just be me. It's got to be the people. You know, I, can't, I can't fill this church full of people. It's got to be you that brings the folks in, that invites the people, uh, that picks them up and brings them to church. It's got to be all that does that. And I want them to see a genuine love and a desire for you to grow, but also for you to help others to grow spiritually, to get saved and to join the church and to get involved and to grow. This ultimately then is going to yield to the third point, which I'm not going to get to this week, the dignity of God's wisdom. The dignity of God's wisdom. We just looked at the devaluation of God's wisdom. Last week, we looked at the demonstration, how to show God's wisdom on the outside, or really allow it to be seen on the outside. And the next Sunday evening, we're going to gather, and we're going to look at verse number 17. And I like verse number 17. I like lists. <laughs> Maybe I'm weird like that, but I like lists. Um, they make really good outlines where it says, but the wisdom that is from above is what? What does godly wisdom manifest? How, how does it, what does it look like? If you were to just write out some characteristics of what God's wisdom would look like in somebody's life, here's what it is. It's first, pure. It's not something you have to hide. It's not something you're, that you should be ashamed of. It's not something that has a dark side. It's pure. First, it's pure, and then it is peaceable, gentle, and easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. And so we're going to look, when we come back next Sunday evening, at verse number 17, and looked at, look at the dignity of God's wisdom.